Oh, it's working good. Is it? We're live. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Welcome to the Neuro Network, Brock. Oh, fantastic to be here. Special Nick. guest, Brock Grill, professor, doctor. Which one? Which? What's the preferred? You know, whatever you like. Professor. They're both good. That sounds, that sounds like a novel and professor. a scholar. Sounds fun. It does. It sounds official. Professor Brock Grill. Brock, your, uh, your lab is humming lately. Yeah. You guys are killing it out there. <laughs> putting out science papers and we've been we've been busy. It's uh it's been exciting to move to Seattle. I think Seattle's being uh in the greater Seattle research environment has really and and being having my lab at a children's hospital has completely changed how I do science in a lot of ways. We've we've really embarked into some new areas that are way more biomedically focused. Because you came from Florida, right? Yeah, I was at the Scripps Research Institute in Florida, in Jupiter, which is about an hour and a half north of Miami. That was the the sister campus um, from the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, which was mm. the, the main first Scripps campus. So I spent about eight years down there. That was where we really started to get out of the box in terms of thinking about how you use unusual genetic models and engineered behaviors to study opioid drugs. That was that was uh, how that kind of started happening. Yeah, because you study opioids and worms, right? Yep. C. elegans. Yep. You yep. know, we Very. did a we did an episode on uh, worms and cannibalism and memory transfer. That's crazy. Looking at you know whether or not you could transfer memories through one worm eating another one. Oh so my god! You do some conditional um, withdrawal response, basically give crazy. them shock stimulus, and then um, you know you can pair the light with the shock. And then you can get the worms to freeze. Yeah, yeah. Or wiggle or whatever it is that they do. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. You could like grind them up and then feed them to the other worms and see if they could That's crazy. absorb the memories of others. That's crazy. Well, I will tell you that like um, worms, in spite of their very short lifespan, the particular species I work on, Sainer habitus elegans, my Latin's not great, but I'll do my best, can, um, is uh, or C. elegans for short, has a lifespan of about, you know, their reproductive, their lifespan about two to three weeks. You can make them grow longer. Yeah. Lots of scientists have done crazy things where you manipulate their genes and you can make them age much longer. But um, but they actually still form memories, short-term memories. Uh, they even have a little bit of long-term memory work. How complex is the the nervous system of a worm, like compared to yeah a higher species? That's of, a great question, growing. right? It's such a great question. Like people think physically in size, they go, "My God, you know, like." The worm I work on is about the size of the white on your fingernails, about a millimeter, right? Very small as an adult. Um, and we are, as you can see, highly variable in size as humans, but also quite a bit larger and more complex in our behaviors and everything about us, right? Um, worms, you know, have a very simple nervous system by comparison. 302 neurons. Oh, that's it? That's it. In a hermaphrodite. But wow. they have classes and categories that are very much like a more complex mammalian nervous system. So, for example... Um, they still form synapses, so junctions between two nerve cells. They can be electrical or chemical, which is very similar to, to mammals. Um, they use the kind of classic neurotransmitters that you've talked about lots in your show, like glutamate, acetylcholine, serotonin. There's some dopamine in the worm. Uh, and there is, um, who am I missing? GABA, one of my favorites, the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. So there's that. And then they have kind of general classes of neurons that are similar to us in a way. They have sensory neurons that bring information into the system. They have interneurons that relay information. And then they have output neurons like motor neurons that control locomotion. And worms have a, you know, is it a brain? I call it a primordial. I, I, I used to call it like, oh, maybe it's a neural net. Like what is this thing called a nerve ring, which is a collection of a whole bunch of neurons in the head of the animal and a bundle of axons that runs through the middle of the animal kind of up towards uh, its its anterior region and i'm like what but it's it's like a primordial brain in a way it's like definitely a, a neural structure it's a structure i mean you probably would call it some people like the original em constructions are the mind of the worm right which is such a cool name um did you ever read the uh the worms runner the worm runners digest or whatever it was called oh the worm well i have i don't know about that one but i've read i have i have from time to time, not very often, there's the Worm Breeders Gazette, which was this really <laughs> old publication venue where back yeah, in the day, I think it might even have been resuscitated and still be around, but people would share these colloquial observations, um, things that were very inside baseball for the model system. Huh. Um, but you touch on an important point, right? Which is that when you think about this simple, two, two interesting points. One is 
um, a scientist I respect greatly, Corey Bargman, has often, I remember her giving this talk where she's, uh, she's at the Rockefeller and she was in charge of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for, I think she might, she was, I don't know if she still is, but anyways, wonderful person and uh, great scientist. And I remember her giving this talk where she just lays it out and says, here's this simple worm. We know where all the synaptic connections are. Yeah. We know the entire complement of all the neurons. In a lot of cases, we know even what neurotransmitters we use. Now, Oliver, my colleague Oliver Hobart, David Miller, um, and Mark Hammerland, their groups have worked together to solve the single cell transcriptome of the animal, right? So the single neuron transcriptome, the yeah. neural transcriptome. So we, we've got some pretty powerful tools. But at the end of the day, I love what um, Dr. Bergman said that's so fascinating, which is even if you have a complete map of the animal at the anatomical level, you can see where everything is connected. You cannot predict behaviors because neuropeptides have the capacity to influence circuitry and animal activity and their map doesn't look like a raw anatomical map. Interesting. You know, it, well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that actually because, I don't know, I guess I could say the, the theme of the week uh, that's been coming up a lot for me at least lately is sort of the spearhead between uh, single cell transcriptomics. Yeah. Where you're like, let's say that you have let's say that you have a, a simple neural network of 30 neurons, right? Uh, and if you want to go in and you want to stimulate that network, you can find, let's say, a common trans or a, a common marker that all of them express. They all express glutamate receptors or something like that. Mm -hmm. Just because they all have that expression marker in common doesn't mean that all of them are the same neuron. It just means that they all express the same one common marker. So, oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that then, is a common misconception, actually. Yeah, but then, like, and, and so, like, you, you expand it out to trying to understand individual circuits by each individual cell, treating it as its own cell within the, mm -hmm. within the network, which is important. But then you have this other wave of information coming in from the literature saying there's representational drift mm -hmm. of, um, you know, of different behaviors along different areas within the cortex or that a single neuron itself isn't as important as the network itself, basically. I think that's probably true, right? The and, and network so level is, is, is complex behaviors and activities emerge out of a lot of things getting together to do a job. Right. Yeah, but what you're saying with the with the worms is interesting because you you know that there's 302 neurons. Yep. Like you know every single neuron, mm -hmm. which in the human brain we don't have that. Yeah, yeah. Not even close. You know, the, the stomatic gastric ganglion, the 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 lobster stomach sort of gave us an appreciation because however many are like 20 or something neurons that are in there, you look at the complexities that are there. But but you you brought up a perfect point in the fact that like you're saying each individual neuron. You know, even with 302 neurons, the amount of complexity that you get is it's shocking. Is shocking. Yep. And you, it's not that easy to predict either. Like we, you know, a lot of people are into AI and computation now. And it's like, you can't feed a computer program yet information <laughs> about C. elegans and predict behavior. Right. We're not there. At least not to my knowledge. Maybe someone's cracked the code at MIT and I need to know. But <laughs> I don't. Bring them on right. The <laughs> to my knowledge. Yeah, sure. But to my knowledge, we don't have this. And, and that is this key missing principle and when you huh. expand in capacity it's dramatic so like you were saying like what's the difference between a worm and a human brain you know a human brain has billions of neurons and trillions of synaptic connections a worm has 302 neurons and i, I can't remember the exact number 1500 1800 synaptic connections i think that are chemical junctions and don't quote me on the numbers but <laughs> the scale of magnitude is massive but then i would argue well of course the scale of magnitude needs to be massive because all you have to do is sit and listen to this conversation and you know there's a difference, right? Yeah. That's insane. It's, it's, it's interesting, right? But it also tells us that anybody who tells you that we really understand neuroscience and the brain are wrong it's, on a certain fundamental so level. Far beyond. We know many things, but I think yeah. there are many question marks that emerge. And you hit on a good one, which is like, um, are all glutamatergic neurons, you know, are they all made the same in a way? Are they all the same thing just because they carry the same neurotransmitter? And yeah. certainly not. And I think you will see categories. What we learn out of a simple system is that not every neuron is unique in its job and what it needs to do. Some could be, but many will fall into classes. And I think in the past, you know, starting with the very first neuroscientist, Ramoni Cajal, you know, um, anatomy kind of led the way. What do they look like? Can we describe them morphologically, right? And then you start getting genetic profiling. And now with single-seek, 
sorry, that's jargony, with single sequencing of individual neurons, you begin to sort of see, I hope, groups. And I think when you look at these single cell experiments and classifications done in simple systems, people don't say each neuron is unique. They say these neurons are a group. They are, they are genetically similar. Every neuron will have a little variation because it's biology, right? Everything's got to be a little different and you don't get evolution without things being a little stochastic, right? And that's yeah. important. So we want that. You want a little flexibility built into the system. But I can tell you that in the worm, there are clean classifications for things, right? There are these 17 inhibitory GABA neurons that you have to have to make an animal move properly, right? You got to be able to quiet the system. 17 GABA neurons. 17. Just like in your brain, <laughs> you need to have, you know, I don't know, thousands of GABA neurons, probably more, probably millions, but they're a much smaller population in your brain than the excitatory glutamatergic neurons that get a lot of the jobs done that kind of make things go as opposed to quieting things down. Yeah. But you you, you did a lot of work just focusing on the GABAergic system, yep. right? And that, you know, when my one of my last papers, I, I patched from some of the GABAergic cells, and I think I patched from like 30 cells, which apparently is twice as much as the entire worm even has. You know, <laughs> there I, are a couple <laughs> other GABAs, but anyways. And, you know, for me, it was like such a small population of the human brain stem of one single yeah. you know, part of the brain stem. But, but with the GABAergic system, it brings in a different light because we usually, like when we make these basic models to conceptualize how the brain works, it's all excitatory based. We, we say mm -hmm. you stimulate this. You turn this area on or we do a behavior in this area turns on and you do a different behavior in this area turns on. So clearly that must be the region of the brain that controls that. But inhibition is just as if not more important Absolutely. than than uh, an excitation. Absolutely. So if you do behavior in an area, the brain just doesn't light up because it's inhibited by another one. It yeah. can still be involved in whatever behavior it is that you're looking at. Absolutely. By means of it not being recruited. So when you were conceptual, well, first of all, what's a, a quick rundown of the GABAergic synaptic project that <laughs> <laughs> for I anyone mean, that's unaware? Yeah, of. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I agree with you. Like there's a lot of building literature and I don't want to oversimplify, but certainly excitatory on or GABA or uh, glutamatergic activity and inhibitory or off GABA signaling or neur neurotransmitter activity in the brain. That balance is really important, and it's it's emerged, you know, in models of epilepsy for sure, in models of autism and intellectual disability. It seems like a lot of these core neurobehavioral deficits can stem from imbalance, and that doesn't mean there's going to be wide range in that. There's going to be different ways you can perturb that. You can reduce GABA signaling, and you're going to get too much excitation. You might increase uh, uh, glutamatergic activity and get excitation, excess excitation that way. So there's kind of a spectrum of these things that's going to happen, right? Um, and I think GABAs are, the inhibitory off circuits are very underappreciated and understudied in the nervous system. And for sure, we've spent some time. So GABAergic plus the worm, you're in a. Yeah, 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 for sure. A select underappreciated. It's sometimes not fully appreciated, but what we've been doing of late quite a bit now, it's not necessarily in GABAergic neurons entirely. We sometimes use mechanosensory neurons, the neurons that sense touch as well. But we've been doing a lot of clinical genetics by CRISPR gene editing human genetic variants into C. elegans. So 10 years ago. So that's that's putting a gene that's identified that, uh, from a human. Sorry, yeah. Into the worm to study, right? Good job, Nick. Good moderating. Well done. Back it up, Brock. You're deep in the weeds. Let's back up. So when a family has a child who has a neurodevelopmental problem, they might be identified to have developmental delay. They're not meeting milestones. If they're over a certain age, they can take an IQ test and they could be said to have intellectual disability. Autism can be diagnosed. You know, that's their basically the ability to interact socially. A lot of physicians can diagnose that just by having an interaction with some with a child. So what comes out of this is, you know, you got a family, they have a child, they're the problem. And now a lot of hospitals will do genome sequencing. They're usually going to do something called the exome, which is the coding part of a child's genome. There's huge swaths of the genome that don't code protein, which, you know, I'm sure your show's talked a lot about this, but the coding parts of the genome can be sequenced faster and much more cheaply because it's a smaller part. And then they look for alterations from the sort of known human genome that most of us have. All of us have lots of variants. Humans are the most outbred, highly variant species on the planet because of our numbers. What is the control 
It's, there are controls where you can look at how frequently do you see a naturally occurring variant in a given gene in a, in a large population oh. of people that okay. don't have a problem. Those are now controls that people often ask for in these large human genetic studies. And I'm not a human geneticist, but I'm becoming a clinical geneticist because if we have a published patient um, with a single amino acid change or a single, it could actually be a single base pair change at the DNA level, but it's altering protein sequence. Uh, more obvious stuff is like when genes get stopped early, you know, likely to be more damaging, right? But you get a lot of kids that have single amino acid changes, one base pair difference from their parents. They arise de novo in the child. This is one of our recent studies. And that begins to argue that perhaps this is the change that causes the child's neurobehavioral deficits. But causation is not just because you found a mutation in a child's genome that you sequenced, right? Yeah. Um, that if it's de novo in the child but not in the parents, you can start to say, okay, that's now associated more with the child and their unique behavioral outcomes. But I always tell people, as being kind of new to this, um, what I've learned is that you know, you need studies, experimental studies, preferably in an animal model system to establish causation. So just because we know a change occurs, like you're saying, we don't know that it's turning the gene on stronger or protein activity on stronger or impairing it. We don't know. And so we have all kinds of variants all the time in, in us as people that are different from other people. And some of them are actually really good, right? They do all kinds of cool things and make us what we are. But every now and then you have a child with a problem with a change and to give that family peace of mind to really address that, you have to test that change in a system where you go in and engineer the change and you say, is the gene function altered now by that change? If you can establish that, the more rigorously you do it across different types of experiments and paradigms, the more independent manipulations you do, the more conclusive the outcome. And of course, the more types of variants you test in different models, the more you understand, right? So for me, causation is a big deal. And that's one of the things we argue for in one of our latest papers is teaming up with an international group of pediatricians and human geneticists. Um, we had eight kids that had de novo variants in one of the genes we study. And my lab went in and we did, Muriel Dubois in my lab did beautiful work where she gene edited using CRISPR these exact same or similar changes into the worm genome. And then we looked at what happened to behavioral outcomes. And in our case, we looked at the animal's ability to habituate to repeated touch sensory input. And uh, yeah, we found all kinds of interesting things in terms of um, loss of genetic function, variable loss of genetic function, partial loss of genetic function. Um, and it had, you know, for those families who I've never met, there will be tremendous peace of mind for a parent. Yeah. You don't have to be able to fix a problem, but just to know and have more certainty about why your child has a neurobehavioral or developmental issue, it, it is a big deal. I'm a dad of two little girls, three and five, and I can completely relate to wanting to know what's going on. And, and, sure. and just because you can't fix something doesn't mean you don't want to understand why it's happening. And yeah. I think that's there's real value in that. And I think there are a lot of people who probably are misdiagnosed because they simply have a change and... A physician fairly thinks, oh, well, that gene has been shown to be involved in autism previously, so that's probably the cause. It's not necessarily the cause, right? And I think we're only beginning. Massive scale sequencing allowed a lot of patients' genomes to be sequenced and, and exomes to be sequenced. And so this has really proliferated yeah. sort of the molecular you know, identification of what might be called molecular genetic identification of problems. But it's also created a situation where how do you actually assign causation to something? Because sure. you can't do an experiment in a human being, right? right? And that's where I think CRISPR gene editing in high throughput models where you can test 5, 10, 15 human genetic variants and in a cost-effective and reasonable time frame could be really powerful. And that brings up, I mean, it's an important point because with translational medicine, you know, um, this was actually, so I don't know if you know, but I actually not not just one PhD I actually did go through for two. Two? Good for you. <laughs> did you get what, both? I did. <laughs> despite, <laughs> despite my looks. <laughs> I'm one of the bigger nerds up on that floor. <laughs> but but for the readers or the listeners out there, Nick is a is a he's a he's a gym rat, you know, <laughs> and a pretty beefy dude. So you wouldn't you wouldn't see him on the street and go, that's the dual PhD guy. That, that's the neuroscientist. <laughs> But anyways, the second one was sort of a unique program. 
uh, and it was complementary to physiology, which is what I did the first one in, but it was clinical and translational medicine, mm-hmm. clinical and translational science. And so the ability to incorporate the basic scientists with the clinicians for rare genetic diseases and variants and things like that. And, and often when we talk about personalized medicine, it's easy to conceptualize saying that we can figure out which drug is going to work best for each individual person. Mm-hmm. But from the flip side is more of, you know, at least one of the hotter topics is actually the reverse in looking at there's a, a, an enormous amount of patients of diseases that we don't know what is causing it. Like we don't like there's Absolutely. not dis- like, you know, a, a lot of diseases themselves, even for people that are unaware, they're categorizations like, you know, we have X amount of symptoms that fit towards this disease. And so it's close enough. This is the disease that we have, mm-hmm. you know, just like not every like Huntington's patient is the exact same and not every schizophrenic patient is the exact same. You know, they meet a certain criteria, kaboom, you know, and then, then, the best then we you can put do. them in there. But there's a huge amount of variance within that. And there's a huge amount of variance of genetically uh, causal uh, diseases that we we have no idea. Absolutely. And so being able to bring that into a scientist where you can uh, you can take these known genetic variants that that the patients have, put it into a model organism and see whether or not it's actually causing the the behavioral changes uh, or the the behavioral um, symptoms that someone might be experiencing is huge. And not only to be able to, uh, you know, in the future to be able to treat them by changing whatever the genetic mutation might be, but to give peace of mind to families that have no idea what's wrong with their child or why they're dying or, or, or something like that. But, but do you think the nervous system is almost, even though in its, in, in its complexity in and of itself, which makes it difficult to study sometimes, but do you think the nervous system actually is better poised to understand some of these translational aspects because we very much, you know, a neuron and a synapse formed between a worm is very similar to a synapse formed between a mouse, which is very similar to a synapse formed between mm. a, a, a human. And neurons are very good at interacting in a similar way in a dish that they are in mm-hmm. the actual brain. Versus, you know, like a kidney transplant or something like that, there's a huge amount of rejection. And with all of the different graft models where you try to induce human disease variation into like a kidney or a lung or something like that, it usually doesn't hold very well. But in mm-hmm. the brain. Mm-hmm. So so know. hold on. So let me get what you're going on. Uh, first, about the orphan disease point. Yeah, orphan diseases, because they're rare, they're understudied. And it's harder to kind of get critical mass to go after them. But I think some models are now revealing opportunities where you can't provide um, further experimental evidence to argue for causation for all patients. But if if you do it for some, it moves the whole group forward a lot, right? So I think that's very important. Um, Getting to the idea of is the, and I'm trying to, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Rather, I'm trying to make sure I get this right. Are you suggesting that some systems that the nervous system might be more therapeutically accessible than other parts of the body? Um, well, not only therapeutically accessible, but um, but more readily able to take a genetic variation that affects the nervous system and study it in a model organism ah, better than ah, certain other ah, ah, interesting. organs. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, for sure. So I would say, I would say one, yes, you know, Worms have not evolved. So some of the organ structures you're talking about, kidneys, vasculature, right? Your heart, oh, sure. your vessels. Yeah. Worms have none of these, but they do have a nervous system. So yes, certain <laughs> genetic models are certainly tractable for studies on the nervous system and potentially the molecular genetic basis of neuro, neuro uh, developmental disorders in a way that other types of diseases might not be tractable. I mean, it's true. You can learn something fundamental and basic about um what a certain gene does, as long as the gene is there, even if you don't have a kidney, you might be able to learn what it's doing, and then you might be able to see application down the road. But sometimes application can be really far out. I think for therapeutic stuff in the nervous system, it's, it is an incredibly difficult problem that has been really hard to get tractability on. There's been some spectacular clinical trials that haven't worked out. Um, there's been some pullbacks in the big pharmaceutical industry in terms of trying to go after nervous system diseases. Um, that's another topic, maybe more controversial where I'm not really an expert, but, but I think it speaks to the point that the nervous system is, is therapeutically 
hard to access. And I think could viral gene therapy be of benefit here? Potentially. You know, there's been some really good examples in the peripheral nervous system where I think there's some companies making real progress here. It's an exciting area. So it might be a, a catch-22 where we can we can take the human mutation, we can put it in a dish, and we can study it, but accessing it therapeutically on the reverse Very, side. very different because your brain it's is just really hard. tough to get to because of the skull-blood-brain barrier. Um, you know, that, that makes issues for drug penetrance and delivery that are really problematic, right? Whereas um, you've seen, I think, a lot of progress in blood-borne cancer research um, uh, versus solid stuff, especially brain tumors, because of accessibility, right? We can we can literally pull someone's blood out now and and do a lot of things to it, reprogram it. We can reconstitute your entire immune system in a way. Um, you can't reconstitute someone's brain. You can't do those types of things. So it's a challenge. But I I look at it as like this: um, science is a is like a it's like a miracle machine that we haven't quite come to comprehend yet, right? Like <laughs> we can't take a time machine and go back to the year 1905, but I will tell you that the iPhone in your pocket, the equipment we're sitting on right now, the computer in front of you, and the medical things that we can do now, even something like the COVID vaccine, the COVID vaccines, incomprehensible 100 years ago, right? I shouldn't say that because there were certainly some early immunologists, uh, Pasteur and others working on vaccines pretty early on before that. But when you think about scope and scale, I think we don't even realize. And then the people who are younger, who've only been around since the year 2002 or something, they are immersed in this in a way where they can't quite see that to them, the amazing has become the norm. Yeah. Right. Which is like kind of weird. Right. And so I'm older. So I, I'm, I'm middle aged. So I sit in the weird in between space where I well, contemplate it's almost, these strange things. It's almost weird because and perhaps it's always been this way in science. But at least I know with the live discussions that I host um, for the neural network, uh, there's this interesting intersection between where the scientists, myself included, are almost like the ones that are behind the curve sometimes in the rooms from the ideas and, you know, the the ideas that individuals are placing for things to do to study consciousness or things to do to mm-hmm. understand how different areas of the brain work, you know, these ideas of how different brain regions interact and how they communicate with each other. And then I always come back and I say, this stuff is all cool, but I can't even come close to measuring anything that's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know like we're archaic back here looking at, you know, what the tools we have. And, and so I always, you know, push back a little and I say these things conceptually are super interesting. If you think that, you know, this interaction of the olfactory bulb and the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala gives us, you know, the ability to see light and, you know, understand whether or not there are theological ideas. Great. That's cool. But how the hell am I going to test something like oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know no, like the, that's that's the really tools are still pretty archaic <laughs> no 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 that's really cool and like the idea of certain concepts that can and can't be tested i mean that's the that's where the realms of of science and religion or spirituality branch out right where it's like <laughs> there's that i'm an unusual scientist that i think there's value in both yeah because there's some questions that just cannot be answered by science and experimentation because we have limits to that yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that we want to be discarding what we can test and not learning from it. Of course, that would be deeply unfortunate. And we sadly live in an era where that is happening, right? Where when I grew up, science was viewed in a different way. And I think now the scientific community has gotten a bit insular. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say mistakes were made, but I feel like uh, a lack of connection to the public. I mean, the idea of scientist as public servant somehow got lost, yeah. you know, in the in the hustle and bustle of things. Maybe that's not even fair. Maybe in in people just, you know, doing what people do, right? Which is sometimes they get a little bit into themselves, <laughs> like I guess, right? Yeah, whatever, right? Keep up with us, scientists. No, but like, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that is happening that will take a huge amount of effort from the scientific community of the future to reach back out and, you know, um, remind each other that we're, in a case, we're in the United States. In this case, servants of the American taxpayer. I think a lot of people forget this, yeah. right? I mean, oh, they yeah. just forget it. Um, I think there's a tendency to think that the more you credential and the longer you study to become, I guess, what you'd call an expert Yes, you learn things that other people don't know, but at the same time, you also create distance between yourself and other people. And yeah. if you can't bridge that gap and bring it back, 
then a lot can get lost in the conversation. And I think for too long, people have sort of taken for granted the argument that like, well, a scientist said this, so therefore it's real. And it's like, okay, that's often the case. But to a lay person who doesn't understand certain things, it can come off as condescending, disconnected. How can I believe you? You know, all this stuff. And so I always refer to the scientific community as being incredibly powerful. But the scientific messaging and attempts to bring these things back to more basic principles, you know, not revering the sole scientific genius, but rather valuing the mission and valuing the ability of the community to make tremendous progress. And then seeing ourselves, you know, as humble taxpayers and as humble servants of the taxpayer is really critical. And I'll tell you what, you and I know a lot of stuff, but if your toilet breaks, you don't want to call me. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you what, on a day-to-day basis, that's a big deal. You need a plumber, that's a pretty damn important thing, you know? Well, and that's what I appreciate you as a scientist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, the first time I met the first time I met you, I think you were you were interviewing or something like that, and I was like, who is this tall guy that, <laughs> you know? And then I was like, damn, you know, I like this guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone has that reaction. Not everyone has. Yeah, Brock can be a polarizing figure, as can I. <laughs> but, uh, but, the, the, but the reason is, though, is that you do, you know, have that interpersonal connection of here's what I know, and I know it very well. But like you said, if my toilet breaks, I'm calling a plumber because I'm not an expert on that. Hey, I think as for, for young scientists coming up in the world, I mean, that's not necessarily your audience, but you know, I think there can be a tendency to think, oh, we know a lot of stuff. What can I contribute? And like, I look at this and I go, okay, when I move my lab from the University of Minnesota to the Scripps Research Institute in Florida, I'm sitting there having lunch one day with Kirill Martemanov, and we're talking and, you know, we're talking about, could you put a, a gene that's not normally in the worm and engineer a behavior? And I'm just like, yeah, you know, that would be so cool. I'm like, it won't work. But what if it did? And I'm just like, <laughs> give it a we got to try. Yeah. No, we got to try. Um, and, and sure enough. And then I was like, well, we were talking about, it, I was like, well, probably got to be the mu opioid receptor, the primary mediator of the analgesic or pain killing effects of opioid drugs the addiction, addictive or rewarding properties of opioid drugs and uh, dependence or withdrawal from opioid drugs. I mean, there are three types of opioid receptors, something called mu, something called delta, and something called kappa. But mu kind of underlies. The others can be involved in different ways. And sometimes certain opioid drugs can target them, no doubt. But mu opioid receptors kind of like, it's kind of like the foundation. It's like the underlying, it's like the hammer of the system. And so we put it into the entire worm nervous system it's really robust. It's amazing how well it'll work, how the animals that can't normally respond well to opioids in most of their behavioral readouts, there's some, uh, I guess for general audience, I should just say, generally speaking, they're not sensitive to opioid drugs. And then you can, Worms. yeah, and then ah. you can create phenotypes, you can yeah. create sensitivity in them. And now you can bring this incredibly powerful tool of just random mutagenesis to say, can you find an animal in hundreds of thousands of animals that will respond differently to an opioid? And it has revealed, you know, we've known about the opioid receptor and its role for 20 years, 25, 23 years. Um, The first knockout mice showed that it's involved in these properties. You know, opioids have been around for thousands of years and they've been studied for a long time. And the studies have really focused heavily on the receptor a lot of the time, especially for pharmaceutical intervention. But me, people like Kirill, we think very differently about this. We think about how do you modulate the existing opioid uh, signaling machinery because an opioid drug, you can't separate the euphoric effects, the addictive effects Mm -hmm. from the pain-killing effects. Can you create therapeutic windows? Can you create ways of treating withdrawal symptoms when someone has massive dependency and needs to get away from an opioid drug because they become addicted. Anyways, it's shocking to me how nature can teach you about this stuff. And like, we've got some patents. We've got a small biotech startup out in Boston called Evo De Novo. Um, So I have a conflict of interest, I declare, on my scientific studies. But Mm -hmm. nonetheless, I think we're moving into some really uncharted territory. And um, I think it has the potential to help a lot of people. That's interesting because... Obviously, we both study the opioid system, yep. you know, and from a physiology or behavioral 
standpoint, we usually target it as we just assume the mu opioid receptor or the primary site at which the opioid acts on the neurons as sort of the given, you know, mm -hmm. and we're just trying to figure out different ways to change how it's able to bind to the receptor or how we're able to change the way that the neuron acts, you know, mm -hmm. or just to kick the, the opioid off of the receptor, yep, yep. the classic antagonist. To add to that, like about 40 FDA approved or in clinical trial, different types of drugs, oh, molecules yeah. that will target the receptor itself, right? Yeah. And yet the solution, the problem is not solved. Right, right. But, but you take an interesting approach to it being that you're looking at ways that once the opioid receptor is activated, mm -hmm. how does it actually have its effects yes. within the cells? And that's Absolutely. the secondary cell, Absolutely. the second messenger types of systems. Yes. And that's what I find fascinating. And, you know, it's always kind of a, a, a funny joke because when you're in grad school, you want to do the sexy things. You want to look at, you know, action potentials and I want to look at animal behavior and I want to look at these big phenotype type of things. And then as you get your own research program going, you always end up the, the the common pathway that is the limiting factor for your studies is always the secondary messenger systems and the genetic <laughs> sequencing. <laughs> and so you're always trying to find that person that can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, shoot, I should have paid attention in biochemistry because that's the thing. But so so what what is basically when you're looking at creating or not, not necessarily creating um, um, a treatment for opioids per se, but when you're looking at modulating the signaling of the receptor itself or the, uh, the response that the receptor activation has within a cell, mm -hmm. how did you come up with the idea of looking at it from almost a bottom up type of approach rather than top down? Is that a No, a no, that's fair. That's fair. So I think I think and I should clarify this, you know, if anyone is an opioid expert listening. I'm a newcomer to the field. I am not an addiction researcher by training. Yeah. I am I am very much an outside-of-the-box thinker. But I would argue that when you have problems where, you know, I was just looking at the latest numbers from the CDC and NIDA, and it's like over 80,000 people died of an opioid overdose last year. And that doesn't even include the people who are addicted and can't function properly or whose lives are being damaged and cannot get off an addictive problem, right? It's like 70% of all drug overdoses or something like that. It's a huge issue. It's a societal level problem. And go down third Avenue. You'll see that. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Every large American city you can see, you know, and it's, it's not like there haven't been other things that have, have given America challenges in the last, you know, 20 years. Cause there've been huge seismic events. We're going through a massive time of change, right? Starting from nine 11 onward, but you know, the, 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 uh, great recession COVID. I mean, it's like a, and that's not even everything. It's like a rolling churn of, you know, you know, uh, the George Floyd murders that upended society or the George Floyd murder that upended society. It's like, oh, I can't even keep up. It's so much stuff going on. But um, I, I lost my train of thought here. But at, at, at the end of the day, for me, it's like, um, oh, I really lost my train of thought. Can you pause? Opioids are bad. Yeah, opioids are bad. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, the societal problem is huge. And oh, and there's been a huge number of people doing great research who've been really focused on the receptor and trying to create drugs that can do things that we want. Kill pain without being addictive. It's just, yeah. I'm not sure it's a solvable problem though. And then a lot of people have been studying how these things trigger effects in the cell. And if I had come at this from the perspective of read a bunch of literature and say, we completely understand opioid receptor signaling, I wouldn't have even attempted the experiment that we did. But instead, I came at it from an outsider's perspective and was just like, do we? And what we've now realized is there is a lot of stuff going on there that we don't understand. And there are actually a lot of signal integration systems that people haven't really thought about yet. And I think it's going to open up therapeutic opportunities. It's going to raise, you know, a lot of questions. And it doesn't mean, and I am not, a, I don't want to demonize opioid drugs because yeah. I am not somebody who thinks they don't have utility. I mean, they still remain in my knowledge, not as a physician, they still seem like the best tools for pain management oh, that we work. have. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And then, and, and you're left going pain. like, well, we need pain management. And until something better comes along, can we get a perfect opioid? I don't think we can. I mean, I know it seems like you wish we could, but with 30 FDA approved or in the process of being approved drugs targeting the mu opioid receptor, I don't think you can get the decoupling that you need. And that yeah. suggests you got to go 
down into the cell to modify things to deal with problematic outcomes um, and maybe to increase therapeutic windows, right? I mean, mm. um, that's another thing you can do is if you have a way to modulate opioids, maybe you can create a longer therapeutic window where they can be used to kill pain without leading to as many problematic side effects. You know, one of the things we started studying lately is tolerance. That is, if you keep taking opioid drugs, they lose their efficacy and you have to up the frequency and the dose. Big problem in the clinic. Um, not addiction, probably a precursor though. Everybody develops tolerance and dependence on these drugs. Only a small percentage of people are going to become addicted to them. That is, it's going to drive craving, drive their behavior, cause them to do detrimental things. Um, anyways. So, uh, you're, so, I mean, you're essentially hijacking the, the receptor in a sense that... Ah, um, uh, yeah. So, so for, I guess, just to, to bring it back for anyone that's curious, basically like when a, a neurotransmitter or neuromodulator binds to the receptor, it's kind of like putting mail in the mailbox mm-hmm. and then the cell opens up the mail and it's up to that whether or not it actually wants to respond to it. Yes. And, you know, by by targeting the uh, binding of the, the neuromodulator and neurotransmitter to the receptor, you're essentially dictating whether or not that mail goes into the mailbox. But the approach that you're talking about hijacking the receptor, essentially, it's instead changing how the cell reads that mail. Yeah. And so you're, you're changing how it actually responds to the, the drug that's bound yep. to it. Yep. Modify who comes up to the mailbox and how they pull the mail out and how much of the mail they pull out. There's a, there, that's that's where I think you can make some progress. But And is that is you know, with the opioid receptor, obviously that's a very clinically relevant receptor to do that on. Yeah. But um is there a unique set of receptors that are um, easier to do that on than other ones? Like I, mean, is- I mean, everything we've done is in this class of receptors called G-protein coupled receptors or GPCRs. Um, my colleague Kirill, my good friend and colleague, knows way more about this than I do, but I think it's about 30% of all drugs target GPCRs. Mm-hmm. So that GPCRs are targeted in a lot of other capacities. They're on the surface of the, of the cell or the neuron, so they're accessible for pharmacological intervention. Inside the cell is harder. Two of the things we found that came out of the box um, with our studies that are really unexpected are re- other receptors in the cell surface that can modulate opioid receptor signaling. So they're also pharmacologically accessible for drug development. Um, getting inside the cell and targeting, more challenging. Um, so I think you know that's one of the surprises that came out for us was these sort of receptor interaction systems that are occurring where you're like, oh, there's modification up right at the, so there's another mailbox next to this mailbox, but imagine that they're connected (laughs) and there's a tube in between them and you can start pressing and pulling the tube to let more mail flow in it's it's not the best metaphor, okay? Yeah, but but you know, I mean, yours is good. But now I'm taking it too far, right? <laughs> now I'm now I'm kind of blowing now it. Now vitamin C is curing cancer. With no, it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, in terms of like, you know, engineered genetics. I mean, what other receptors one might take? What other molecules one might take and create these genetic phenotypes, these genetic outcomes in a, in a simple system and then manipulate them is a really interesting question. Yeah. We're not talking about science to do crazy things, right? We're talking about a non-parasitic animal that you can control, you can destroy it, so you're not releasing it into the natural population, nothing like that. But rather, hey, let's put something in that's not normally there and see if we can modify it. Worms have a lot of... Um, relevant neurotransmitters, like I was saying, serotonin and dopamine that have relevance in mammalian addiction and, uh, and, and um, uh, disease, right? Uh, or, and, and so you're kind of left going like, well, people have been studying these things in their native context, but like kind of what we thought was cool was like, what if you modify it? What if you engineer it in and create something targetable? And then the, the really interesting thing is we could do it in an unbiased way. Once you bring unbiased genetics, that is you just mutate the animals, hundreds of thousands of them, look for the animal with that odd response. Mm -hmm. That is totally unbiased. Whereas generally when people have been doing these studies, they want to knock out a gene of interest, top down like you were saying, right? They want to target this. But what that does is it goes after what you already know and it creates a bit of bias. Like we know this does that over here, so let's test it here. Valuable, but biased. The beauty of unbiased, what's called forward genetics, that is start with an abnormal animal and then map it and you know we sequence whole genome and then figure out what's abnormal there and what might be causing it and then crispr edit to to test and validate a particular genetic change 
um, that had never been done with the opioid receptor. And that's kind of what allows this to open up. So I think there's vast swaths of territory for how one can engineer things and start testing them genetically. And I'm left wondering whether we'll learn a lot more than, you know, this will go way beyond me. I wonder how much we'll learn when other people start to think about this and the community starts to think about it and test it. And uh, I would love nothing more than for that to happen. So right? you think and, one day, you know, uh, being able to hijack some receptors and to put them into areas that they aren't normally there. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking. Oh, in, wow. Now you're now you're talking in a human being. Yeah, well, now I'm like, you know, because we love to do just wild pie in the sky hypotheses. But but let's say, you know, I, I like to take the approach of if you insert a receptor somewhere. Uh, you know, and there's nothing, you know, as long as you're getting flux of different cations or something in mm-hmm, or out of the mm-hmm. cell, like the, the rate at which it occurs is going to be unique sometimes to the individual receptors. But if you're exciting the neurons, you're exciting mm-hmm, the neurons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm thinking for, let's say a patient with something like Parkinson's or something like that, mm-hmm. where you have a deficiency of a certain signaling mm-hmm. within a given region that we mm-hmm. know the region. Mm-hmm. And if you're able to, let's say, you know, in a Parkinson's patient, they're not able to release enough dopamine mm-hmm. or they have a deficiency in dopamine that they can't activate the dopamine receptors in order to get activation. But those neurons might be able to release norepinephrine or they might be able to release serotonin or glutamate or whatever else is is coming out of those neurons. Do you think, you know, perhaps you could be able to insert let's say, glutamate receptors or insert different receptors into regions of the brain that may not Hmm. necessarily be there. And so now you have a deficiency in dopamine signaling in that area, but now we've just rewired it to be a a glutamatergic I mean, I think that's where, I mean, this is out of my area quite a bit, but yeah, I think that's where if you talk to any circuit biologist, anybody who does something called optogenetics or uses... Uh, something called a, a dread or an engineered GPCR to fire up or fire down a neuron. Um, I think what a lot of people are thinking about is those kinds of, you know, it's a bit like a circuit breaker, right? Where you might be able to, or a bypass, I guess, where it's yeah. like, if this is a problem, could we turn it on somewhere else to bypass it? And it's like, I think the, you know, we are way in the realm of science fiction, <laughs> but um, but I think it's pretty cool science fiction. Yeah. But I think the idea of, virally delivering something to try to switch something on um is is pretty out there but it could it could work right i think the reason it's going to be incredibly difficult so when we talk about that's a sort of a kind of gene therapy versus small molecule or or, uh, intervention right small molecule intervention i can give it to you and i can take you off of it if it's really bad these viral based interventions there's no go back yeah. Right. So, so there's a lot of hype around gene therapy. I think it will be revolutionary. I think it's going to be very exciting. And I think there's going to be tons of applications that are going to be incredibly powerful. But the danger in, in the sort of bypass brain circuit manipulation world is that if I bypass and I do something unexpected, I could really hurt somebody. And that's what's going to be really challenging for those things. You know, mm. if I've got a bad side effect from a small molecule intervention, good news, you can come off the small molecule. Right. I can't take that virus out of you. No. You know, I mean, you could argue if you're doing it optogenetically, oh, I can stimulate those neurons with light and I can put a cannula or something in your brain. Like it starts to sound really crazy. Right. Where it's like, I guess you can come off, but you've still got an implant in your brain. Right. Which (laughs) which is a pretty massive, massive intervention. Right. So. Yeah. So I'm still a molecular guy. I'm still I'm still very much into the, the idea that small molecule targeting is the way to go. But. I think there are times where a problem is so massive, like someone is really debilitated that that and it's a frequent or common disease, maybe something like um, muscular dystrophy or something like that, where gene therapy starts to make a lot of sense. And the consequences of no intervention are really, really severe and dangerous, right? And really problematic. So the risk threshold goes way up. But when you talk about most neuropsychiatric problems, you don't have that kind of risk threshold. So yeah. your Parkinson's example is a good one because um, the trajectory isn't great. You know, my dad has Parkinson's, right? Okay. And so I've been watching, personally observing how, you know, my dad is deteriorating, right? And it's it's heartbreaking and it is really difficult to watch. And 
and yet he's still there and it's kind of sad right and, right but i've started we've started seeing some cognitive effects too for sure his yeah. process it's not just a motor thing with parkinson's it starts out that way for sure but it actually has other effects so so for something really severe where the prognosis is really bad like early onset parkinson's like you're 50 and it's happening you're like oh my this is not good and it's a genetically inherited it's not yeah it's not a idiopath i guess you call it idiopathic you know you know that this you've got this mutation it's in another member of your family and you're going to get parkinson's at a young age and it's going to be very damaging that's a scenario where somebody might go for a more dramatic intervention like the one you're describing but hey i just think it's cool to think about what could happen and then here's the only thing i can tell you that i know is going to be true all these things we're talking about seem like fantasy yeah and in 20 to 50 years some variation maybe not what we're talking about but something really unexpected will emerge crispr is an amazing example of that yeah it's really an amazing example i mean everything we're talking about is not out of the realm in the lab already yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it's but i mean that's one of the the reasons why i wanted to to bring you on here is that what, what I find a lot in discussions is it's easy to jump to sticking probes in the brain. It's easy to jump to inducing viruses because mm-hmm. it's, it's a simple concept to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, we give something and it goes and it attacks a certain region and then we can manipulate it with a probe or we can manipulate it with a light. But on the flip side, the, the amount of uh, undiscovered or the un, uh, you know, uninvestigated frontier into the small molecule signaling Oh, is still gigantic. Oh, it's staggering. And it's so if you actually under it's it's so underutilized, you know, for a lot of different projects. And and I, you know, personally looking at you know, because a lot of some of the stuff that I do is looking at single ion channels and how it affects a, a network level within brainstem circuits, mm-hmm. and the power that a single ion channel or the power that a single receptor can have, and being able to manipulate the downstream targets of them or, or the downstream signaling from a single small molecule is almost like the, the biggest phenotypes that I've ever witnessed in model systems. And so it brings enthusiasm to the other side of the thing and to saying, you know, we have this uninvestigated frontier and this, you know, this new idea of we're going to be able to stick probes in different regions and we're going to be able to mani- manipulate it. And we bring all these fears of different products that are coming out to say that, you know, we're going to chronically implant something that's going to record and stimulate at the same time. And you're going to have some new consciousness experience. But but, you know, we can have safer, potentially alternatives Mm -hmm. by targeting the machinery that's already there, you know, in reversible ways, reversible ways that you don't have to put a probe in your brain. Yeah. And and. And like when you think about the, the the exploration space, the sort of drug discovery development space, it's it's held back by a massive cost, obviously, yeah. right? But I think when you and and there's a big bias, right? So most pharmaceutical companies they want a receptor, they want a GPCR on the cell surface. Manipulating the inside of cells has been much harder. Um, I think there's 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 some promise, you know, from some companies like Denali is an interesting organization that spun out of Genentech and they. They have some brain delivery techniques there that are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But it's like the vast majority of your proteins in, in, your, in, a, in a given cell, neuron included, are not on the outside of the cell. <laughs> They're on the inside. Yeah. And right now, we're just like, we've had this, I, I think this investment of the National Institutes of Health over the last 25, 30 years has been utterly amazing. I mean, when you go back to the early 90s, I wasn't that old then, but there weren't that many drugs there weren't that many biotech startups. There were some large pharmaceutical companies, but this explosion of drug discovery, drug development, including the gene therapy revolution, all of this CRISPR, it's all starts with federally funded academic research. All of it. It is staggering to think about how incredibly successful this has been and how massively underappreciated it is because it doesn't just yield results in a couple of months, but it yeah. takes years or decades. But it is staggering, right, to think about. And yet, with all of that ammunition already being deployed, most of it, especially for the people at big pharmaceutical companies that have real resources to go after these things, a lot of cell surface molecules. GPCRs, fantastic. If you've got another surface receptor, maybe sounds good. <laughs> But it's like there's a lot of material inside the cell that can be manipulated theoretically. Yeah. That's a really hard problem to solve. But you know what? It, it, the community will solve it. 
Yeah. Right. The collective. And I don't want to sound like a communist because I'm not. Okay, I'm not. <laughs> Anytime you start invoking collective. I, I think I got to take a poll of your lab. For <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm uh, I'm a dual citizen of both the wonderful countries of the United States and Canada. And um, and I'm very proud of both. And um, but, you know, but I think that some pe- sometimes we forget, you know, there's a little bit of a, a tendency to glorify the individual. Right. The great man thing. And it, and it should be. And I say great man because for a lot of time, even the great woman wasn't really appreciated. Yeah. Right. And, and it's weird because now I see what science has done. And what you realize is it's this large federal investment across decades, you know, in a kind of unprecedented way in human history. Right. Like the United States invested huge efforts. We were a scientific backwater before World War II. And the, America makes this multi-generational massive investment in scientific research federally funded research medical research and and in like the outcomes are staggering in in terms of their success and the economic um value right and sometimes we tend to hear too much about the negatives and it's always like what went wrong and it's like you know it's unbelievable right like one of my girls has got a she has a disease you know, she has juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And I mean, there's treatments and those treatments didn't exist 20 years ago. It's my wife has Crohn's disease. She had to have some treatment. Same deal did not exist. Both of their treatments. And I'm not going to get into personal medical information, but both of their treatments emerge from basic research where you don't know what the application will even be. Mm -hmm. And yet there it is. Real treatments for real disease, amazing, right? And I just think that it's staggering what the potential is, right? And yeah. and we're just talking I mean, the about thing inside with, of a cell with the basic research, like you're saying. It's you have it when it's when you when it's ne- when it's needed. Yeah, you know, a lot of times you look at the basic research and you say, I I don't know when this is ever going to be useful. I don't know, like, why are you studying this one molecule? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> Because a lot of times you're studying it and there's only a few cases or something like that. But if all of a sudden the cases are starting to step up, you go, oh, hang on. Yeah. You know, it doesn't take that many generations for all of a sudden you have a booming change in a genetic environment. And yeah. suddenly, kaboom, we already have it ready. Or like you're saying, it's been studied for how many years. We already understand the system. We can Absolutely. employ it very much. And for, you know, regardless of anyone's beliefs on the COVID vaccine or whatever that, you know, controversial topic that might be. But the fact of the matter is, is that these technologies were being studied long before that that vaccine was employed. And so when all of a sudden it needed to be employed for a large scale vaccination, you know, it's easy to go back and say, well, there was no study. There was no studies that were done looking at long term or there was no studies that were looking at the safety and the efficacy of these vaccines or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that the disease, the the virus, the technologies had been studied for a long time in basic science. And now all of a sudden they were just employed. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like it just all of a sudden, oh, no, COVID hit. Now we have to come up with something. Oh, I know. COVID. COVID People was... have been studying, you know, the SARS viruses for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, some things like sort of, the, the basis of mRNA vaccines, understanding how what mRNA is, how it works, what it does, you know, that that's all basic research, right? Yeah. And then someone moving it into a vaccine realm, it's like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure people even knew how well they would work, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, through both corporate efforts and basic science efforts, academic efforts, NIH-funded efforts, you essentially have this huge scientific enterprise that is able to go out and tackle this problem in unprecedented timelines and, you know, saves, I don't know, how many countless lives. It's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's just mind-boggling, right? So, and full disclosure, like, I've had, like, I don't know, I don't know three or four vaccines, right? Because I've had the bivalent, too. But, uh. um, but I, I just think it's just amazing the speed with which this was developed right and it just shows you that you know the scientific enterprise can is becoming nimble too which is which is a crazy thing because a lot of times you're working on problems for decades right and and you're like maybe this will help somebody someday 
but I will never see that application. And that was how I viewed my whole career for the longest time. Yeah. And then one of the genes we've been studying, oh, we've been studying it for like 15 years. I don't know. Oh, all of a sudden I get a call. I get an email. There's kids that have changes here. Yeah. And you're the person to talk to about this. And I'm like, well, that's super weird. I'm like, <laughs> I'm oh, just studying. Of I'm not sure what to do with that. Right. It yeah. took me a while to recalibrate. And they had really helpful collaborators and people who were like helped to educate me on this. And then it's like, well, we have a chance to deploy what we know to make a difference. Let's let us be creative again. Yeah. Because right? if you told somebody, I'm going to try to establish the molecular genetic basis of disease for this person, what's wrong with them? I want to contribute to understanding that using that over there that is a tiny microscopic animal worm on a on a little dish crawling around that looks nothing like a human. It sounds ridiculous, right? And even in the scientific community, it can be met with a lot of skepticism. Sure. But of late, between the opioid work and some of the CRISPR gene editing we're doing now, I'm really trying to push the envelope not on modeling disease. I don't talk about modeling disease. Rather... Can we test the molecular genetic basis of disease? Can we go after a pressing biomedically relevant question in our system and get leverage that then can be moved into another system, whether it's looking at patient profiles that a pediatrician's doing, or whether it's one of my colleagues or my collaborator, Kirill, doing experiments in a rodent model. You can still make the translational leap right. by moving across different model systems. Um, and I, I think there's just a lot of opportunity there. And so I... When I started my career, whatever, even if I go back 10 years, I would never have thought we'd even be doing this type of science. Creating right? the translational infrastructure. It's just, it's just crazy, right? And it's, but you got to stay open-minded. And you can't believe the people who think we've solved everything. Yeah. Whenever someone says that, I'm just like, nah, I don't know about this. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure? I'm like, because I'm not as sure. And uh, I think that Can't sometimes figure that, out what to put on my sandwich for lunch. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, a little a little healthy skepticism is good, right? I think misguided skepticism can be dangerous, right? And we live in a weird time. There's no doubt about that. I'm there's there's it, human beings can't process all the information coming at us anymore. We're we're meant to live in groups of fifty to hundred people, right? <laughs> and know everyone, and yeah. mostly interact via touch and and sound. We're not meant to be glued to screens. You know, and and have a Google or an AI at our disposal. Like yeah. The next step of some of the chatbot stuff, I'm just like, yeah, I can't even keep up anymore. And we'll just. Be I back need to, to retire. Bench surgery. <laughs> <laughs> can't write the code anymore. <laughs> Brock, this hour flew by. We're already there. It was awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it was really it was fun. fantastic. We're, well, we we uh, we both had a rain check, so. We're, we're yeah. even on rain checks. And I just I just hope desperately it makes sense to someone else who's listening, right? Like I, I'm trying so hard to get out of the inside baseball that sometimes science can be, right? And yeah. Convey other messages, right? But yeah. yeah. Well, I, you we know. we learned that, uh, you know, when a, when a professor gets a flat tire, then uh, it's frustrating <laughs> because you have to find time. When a postdoc gets a flat tire, you're worried because you might not be able to eat lunch the next week. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a sale, uh, that is a whole other conversation, <laughs> right? I mean, speaking of changes, no one can keep up with, right? Yeah, I literally. Mean, it's, it's, it's true. And yes, I did get a flat tire yesterday. And, uh, yeah. and we had to figure out how many uh, how many doctors it takes to fix a, a laptop that won't connect to an audio system. Oh, yeah. System. Well, you know, it's all good. But, yeah. you know, but, you know, there's lots of interesting topics to talk about. I, uh, I, I love your podcast. I've listened to several episodes, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's fun to get to, I like your take on things and, and the provocative questions you asked. It's great. It's very enjoyable. And, and I like getting thinking uh, outside of the box It's kind of fun. And this has been like really cool. It's a scientific playground. Yeah, it's great. And now maybe a few people can, well, I'll, I hope I get critiqued by someone saying, oh, yeah. you don't know how to say Saying or have to just elegance. Like I said, no matter what you say, you're going to piss someone off. So you might as well <laughs> just say it and, you know. And I told you that I was going to fucking swear. And I did not swear hardly <laughs> yeah, at all. You held it. I, you know, I almost, well, you I'm know, still going to put that little, little E on the bottom. It's my to, calling mark, right? That <laughs> normally I'm, I'm, I'm got, I have a loose, I have loose lips, but, you know, but I, I think. A sailor scientist. 
The lumberjack uh, language it, uh, can add a little spice to the You day. know, I think it adds enthusiasm sometimes. It's yeah. the exclamation point in, in speaking sometimes. That's how I use it, right? Yeah. I, I, I always say, I always think to myself, you don't want to use language as a cudgel against somebody. Yeah. But if you can use language to draw attention and make a point, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and I laugh because recording the first few episodes... It was like five hours of content or something. I get a call from my mom. It says, this stuff was great, but you said shit once. Oh. <laughs> well, we need to have another episode went, on the creative use of language. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll get into uh, yeah the basis of language. <laughs> I'm not uh, an expert, every- but I will definitely come on to provide color commentary. See? <laughs> this is where, this is where I, I come up with my hypothesis that, you know, everything that we have is completely based upon a language which we ourselves have created. And so what actually is the truth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we can say that, you know, one plus one equals two. And that's great that we know that that's true. But we were the ones that created the organizational system. So, yeah. Eh, and know. think, I didn't say fucking cool once. And I totally should have. I know. We didn't get the true personality. That's okay. It's my, it's, it's, Came I'm on. not used to podcasting thing. Like I have eh. headphones on and a mic and I'm like, oh, how, how weird is this? Right. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Yeah. That's all right. We'll get it on the next one. <laughs> all right, Nick. It was super fun. Thanks, Brock. And uh, for anyone listening, www.theneuronetwork.org. Apple, Spotify, any major podcast player, rate the show, review. Have a good week. Well, I'll I'll review it and rate it. This was great. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>